0: listening to a sermon from Sojourn Church in Fairfax, Virginia. We hope that this is an encouragement to you no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey. If you're not already, we would encourage you to connect to your local church. If you'd like to find out more about Sojourn in particular, please visit our website at SojournFairfax.com. May God bless you now as you listen to the preaching of His Word. We're going to be reading out of uh, the Gospel of John. We're in chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 14. And go down to verse 18. You could follow along. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the, son, of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through King Jesus. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, Good morning, good morning, welcome to Sojourn. If this is your first time gathering with us, my name is Justin, it's good Uh, to have you here this morning. We have a Connect meeting that happens uh, every second and fourth Sunday of the month, and so it's going to be happening today after the service. So if you're new here or have been coming for a few weeks, we'd love to have you come out and hang with us after the service so we can get to know you a little bit better and help you get plugged into the life of our church. For those of you that gather regularly with us, it's good to see you as well. Uh, It's been a joy to lift our voices this morning in praise and now to open up God's Word with you. So let's go to the Lord in prayer before we do that. Holy God, we give you thanks this morning, and we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the means of grace that you've given us in your word. That God, you are the one who is high and lifted up, the creator of all things, yet by your grace you've revealed yourself to us through your word. You've made a way for us to know you through Christ. And so I pray this morning as we open up your word that by the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd help us to know you more this morning. Wherever we find ourselves, if we feel like we know a whole lot about you or we don't know much at all, God, I pray that you would draw us closer to you and that you would increase our knowledge of you, not just for knowledge's sake, but so it might lead to worship in our lives, that we would ascribe all worth and all praise and all honor and all glory to you, the one who alone deserves it. And so God, we thank you for the opportunity we have to gather together this morning. We pray Holy Spirit, for you to work in this time. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, some of you uh, probably know this, and some of you may not, but my family right now is in the middle of moving. We're in the process of moving. We actually have moved out of our house that we've lived in for the last five and a half years here in Fairfax, uh, but we haven't yet moved into the place we're going to be living, which is actually only one street over from where we currently live, and so right now we are hanging out with my parents. They're gracious enough to let us Live with them for a few weeks in their house, but it's a blessing for us that all this has worked out uh, because we really love our neighborhood, and God has been really kind to us. That in the five and a half years that we've lived in this particular neighborhood, that we've really gotten to know uh, quite a few of our neighbors and built genuine friendships and relationships with them. And so, to be able to just move one street over and stay in our neighborhood is a huge blessing for us. And the reason that we're excited about that is for a couple of different things, not just because we get to hang out with those people, but one of the things that God, I think, has shown us and taught us over the last few years is the importance of the ministry of presence. The fact that, that when you actually spend time face-to-face with someone, there's something powerful that can take place in that. And regardless of what technology allows us to do, The fact that you can get on the phone right now and talk to someone and see their face on a screen, even if they live halfway around the world, that's amazing, and we can be thankful for that, but it doesn't replace actually being physically present with someone. But also in a transient area, it isn't just the ministry of presence that's important for us, but also being rooted in a particular place. You know, a long time ago, it was pretty common for people to be in one place for the entirety of their lives. But in a place, in a major metro area like Northern Virginia, and the D.C. metro area, people come and go all the time. I know a lot of you, most of you probably aren't from here. And some of you will be moving on from here in the near future. So being rooted in a particular place is also something that's important for us. And for my family in particular, we feel like God has called us to be here for the long haul. That we want to, as a family, be rooted in this place. Having deep roots go down, that we'd be here for a long Time In the neighborhood God has called us to be in, regardless of how big our family gets in size or number. And so we're grateful to be able to be where we're at. You know, a verse that has resonated with me a lot over the last few months and really has become a a good aim for my life is Psalm 37.3. The psalmist writes this, Trust in the Lord, do good, dwell in the land, and befriend faithfulness. Trust in the Lord, do good, dwell in the land, or be rooted in the land and befriend faithfulness. And I really think that if I can do those things, not in my own power, not in my own strength, not in my own ability, but by God's grace, by the work of His Spirit within me, that it will honor my God and King. And it will honor Him because, one, He's called me to do it. He's called me to walk in obedience in this particular way. But also because He is a God who's done the same. We're at the start of this new sermon series that we're calling Seeing Jesus. We're walking through the Gospel of John. The Apostle John is telling the story of Jesus' life. And we're calling it Seeing Jesus because what we see John doing is helping us to see Jesus for who he truly is. And what we see Jesus doing in our text this morning is coming to us to dwell among us. And I think it's a truth about Jesus that we can often overlook. Maybe you call yourself a follower of Jesus and you've known him for a long time, and if I asked you, did Jesus come and dwell among us? Well, of course he did. But really stopping and thinking about the significance of what Christ has done, it can be something we overlook or we downplay or we just kind of take for granted. See, so Dwelling, being present with people, is always significant. It's always significant because it puts at least two people in close proximity to one another to develop relationship, to impact one another's lives, whether for good or for ill. But it's cosmically significant, it's eternally significant when the one of the people who comes to dwell and be in close proximity with you is the king and creator of all the universe. And it's in his dwelling among us that Jesus faithfully lives out his calling. It's in his dwelling among us that Jesus faithfully lives out his purpose of why he came in the first place, and that's to rescue the world from its rebellion. See, in order for you to know God truly, you need to see Jesus rightly. In order for you to know God truly, you need to see Jesus rightly. And so my hope today as we open up God's word is that God would do what I prayed for, is that he would give you a greater understanding, an increase of knowledge of why Jesus came, and that you'd be blown away by it. Maybe for the first time in your life that you'd be overwhelmed by the fact that Christ has come, or maybe just for the reminder that you need this week because you encounter whatever God has for you that you'd be reminded and refreshed in this reality by its significance and that by doing that it would lead you in your own life to trust in the Lord, to do good, to dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. So let's dive into John chapter 1 verses 14 through 18 and may we see Jesus more clearly today. In these five verses we learned three more things about Jesus. We've learned quite a bit already in these first few verses, this introduction that John is giving to this gospel narrative. But we learned three new things about Jesus this morning, three things that John will continue to tell us about through his narrative. And so if you're writing down notes, you can write these three things down. He says, or we learn this, that he, meaning Jesus, he dwelt among us, he displays God's glory before us, and he explains God to us. He dwelt among us, he displays glory before us, He explains God to us. In verse 14, we see he dwelt among us. Look at verse 14 again. It says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God always intended to dwell among his people. We can go back to the very beginning of the scriptures, the beginning of time, when God created the heavens and the earth, when he called all of creation into existence by the power of his word, just speaking it all into existence, calling everything To be out of nothing. And the pinnacle of his creation was creating human beings, man and woman, created in his image. So he creates Adam and Eve at the beginning, and he creates them not just to bear his image, but to be in relationship with him. It tells us in Genesis 1 and 2 that God walked with Adam in the cool of the day in the garden. There was an intimacy, a dwelling that God intended to have with his people But when we get to Genesis chapter 3, we see that Adam and Eve rebel against God. They decide to go their own way and throw off God's good authority and seek to be their own person, to be the king of their own lives. And God, in his holiness, because of his holiness and because he's merciful, he removes Adam and Eve from his presence. God doesn't dwell among them in the same way that he once did. And he removes them from his presence because he is perfect and holy and altogether right. So, someone who's rebelled, who's affected by sin, can no longer dwell in his presence. It would taint God's holiness. But, our God is a redeemer, and our God is an overcomer. And so, he made a way for his people to, t- to still experience his presence. In the Old Testament, that ultimately culminated in the building of the temple But before that, God instructed his people to build a tabernacle, basically a really big tent they could set up at various places. They were traveling in the wilderness to experience his presence. The purpose of the tabernacle and the temple was to allow the glorious presence of the Lord to descend and dwell in their midst. In Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, God says this, and let them make me a sanctuary, the tabernacle, the temple, that I may dwell in. In their midst, But not just anyone could enter the tabernacle, not just anyone could kind of roll up on the tent and be like, I want to go hang out with God today, I want to walk into his presence this morning. No, because again of our sin, there was a separation that was created because of that, this chasm, this eternal chasm separating us from God. And so God establishes this tabernacle, but along with it, He establishes rituals and sacrifices that need to take place. And there's only a set group of people who can enter in after exacting those sacrifices. The priest could go into the presence of the Lord at various times of the year, could experience God's presence in that way. But see, right there, that tells us this was never an end in itself, it was never meant to just be that. Everything about the tabernacle, everything about the temple was always meant to point to Christ. See, John concludes his introduction in these first 18 verses to the story he's telling by coming back to where he started in talking about the Word. As we learned a few Sundays ago, the Word is not some power or force or concept. The Word is a person. An eternal person who is God, who is creator, and who is the overcomer. But just to make sure that we understand that, John makes it explicit right here what he's alluded to throughout this introduction the Word became flesh. John wants to make something crystal clear to us. So Jesus didn't appear to be human. Like that, we looked at him and it's like, well, he kind of looks like a human being, but maybe he's not really human. This wasn't some mind trick that Jesus was pulling on us. Where through our eyes we see him as that, but really he's not that. No, Jesus was fully human in every physical way. He had real skin and bones and blood. His organs inside his body worked the same way that yours do. He had to eat. He had to sleep. He had to go to the bathroom. He had to bathe himself. He had to experience everything that you do, just like you do. His flesh wasn't different than yours. It isn't different than yours. That's why the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. He knows what it's like to be tired. He knows what it's like to experience difficulty in a fallen and broken world. And we're going to see that played out as we walk through this story, the Gospel of John, in the weeks and the months to come. But this is extraordinary force, and this is what I don't want us to miss. I don't want us to gloss over this. I want us to slow down and really think about the significance of what John's communicating to us in this. I mean, think about this the eternal, all powerful, majestic, holy, perfect Son of God, who is God, came and took on human form. That's amazing. I mean, that would have been mind-blowing to the first century audience that John's writing to, and it should be mind-blowing for us today as well. I mean, this is the ultimate condescension of God, the ultimate act of humility. The one who created humanity took on humanity. The Apostle Paul talks about the same concept, the same idea in Philippians chapter 2, which we went through recently as a church. Paul says this, encouraging the Philippians, encouraging us to Walk in humility to serve others and love others more than ourselves. He says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who? Talking about Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, did not count kind of equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. How did he empty himself? By taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. See, church, we need to make sure that we understand something here. When the Son of God, when Jesus took on human flesh, he did not cease to be God. When he took on human flesh, he did not cease to be God. Nothing was subtracted from the Son of God, only something added. So what this means is, is that Jesus at the very same time was 100% God and 100% man. 100% God, 100% man. There's no reduction in his deity or his humanity. There's no admixture to who Jesus is. Like he's a little bit of God and a little bit of human being mixed together to make this God-man Jesus. No, he's at the same time, 100% God, 100% man. It's a union of his two natures, his divine nature and his human nature. Now, that's a pretty mind-bending thought, right? Because we don't exist that way. We have one nature. So for us to try and wrap our minds around that can be really challenging, and it should be a mind-bending kind of thing for us, because it's difficult for us to grasp. But listen, we can't throw it out just because we can't fully understand it. I think all of us, I mean, I know all of us live in this kind of post-enlightenment era where if we can't explain something, if we can't fully understand it, then we reject And so what that does is it removes mystery from our lives. But God is a mysterious God. His ways are unsearchable. He's inexhaustible. We're never going to be able to fully figure out everything about God. There has to be mystery in this. And so the fact that Jesus exists as both God and man, 100% God, 100% man, should blow our minds. For the first century audience, this would have been revolutionary. And it's Just as revolutionary today, no other belief system, no other belief system declares that God has become flesh or taken on flesh. It's the twist in the story that nobody really saw coming. It's a defining mark of Christianity. It's foundational to Christianity. If you deny the incarnation of Jesus, that Jesus is fully God and fully man, then you reject Christianity as a whole. Because if Jesus doesn't do this, then none of the rest of it can actually happen. Everything builds off of this. Jesus has to be fully human so that he experiences the temptations and the difficulties that you and I do, yet walks in obedience. He has to be God because he can't devalue himself of being God. He has to be fully God and fully human in order to go to the cross and be raised from the dead so that you and I might have life forever and ever. See, as both God and man Jesus lived among humanity in the midst of the mess. The word became flesh. He took on humanity. And what does it say? And he dwelt among us. He came to us as one of us, just like you, just like me, to live among the brokenness of the world, to live amongst the wreckage caused by our sin and our rebellion. I mean, what happens when you dwell among someone We've had people live with us over the last 16 years of our marriage at various points in times, various houses. Right now, like I said, we're, we're staying with my parents. And when you live with someone, it, it builds a, a deeper relationship with them. There's a deeper level of intimacy that takes place when you live clo- in close proximity to someone. There's no hiding. There's no pretending You're doing life together. You see each other in your worst moments and your best moments. Like when you wake up in the morning and your hair is all kind of funky and you've got nasty breath, that happens when you dwell with somebody. We see that happen here. The same thing happens when Jesus comes to dwell. He's living up close and personal. Another translation of this verse says that the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. He moved into the neighborhood. This is amazing reality. The condescension, the humility of Jesus continues. I mean, Jesus is the transcendent one. He's the one who's high and lifted up, the creator of all things, who's existed for all eternity. Yet he comes and he shows us his imminence that he comes and dwells amongst creation in close proximity. The king of kings, the eternal word, God himself, he comes to the broken. He comes to the hurting. He comes to the wayward and the weary. He comes to the rebellious to those enslaved to sin. In other words, he comes to you and he comes to me. See, what John is declaring here is that there's no need for a tabernacle anymore. There's no need for a temple any longer because now God takes up residence among his people in the person of Christ. And I love in God's providence this morning that our sojourn kids are learning about this from the Old Testament, learning about the temple of God, learning about the presence of God, we didn't plan that out, God did. So if you've got kids and sojourned kids this morning, try and connect the dots for them a little bit more. Say, man, I learned about the same thing you did this morning, but yet we were in the New Testament, you were in the Old Testament. There's no need for a temple or tabernacle anymore because Jesus is the true temple and the true tabernacle of God. In fact, the word dwell in verse 14 can be translated tabernacled. Jesus tabernacled among us. What John is saying here is the same thing that Paul illustrates for us in Colossians 1.15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. I mean, what what is an image, right? It's something before our eyes, something we see before us. He's saying Jesus is putting on display who God is. This means that God hasn't closed himself off to us. He'd be right and justified in doing so to say you've rebelled against me, you've sinned against me, I'm not going to open myself up to you. No, that's not what God does. What we see in and through Christ is that God has opened himself up to us to be seen and received by all who would turn from their sin and turn to Christ in faith. And that's great news for every single person who's ever existed, is that God has come to us. See, this text right here, even just this verse right here, it places Jesus in history, it puts him in time and place. That means Jesus is not an idea, he's not a theory. He's not someone to be debated or discussed. No, Jesus is someone to be seen and listened to and obeyed and followed. It was in his dwelling among us that he did something that he couldn't do from a distance. And that leads to our second point this morning. He dwelt among us, but he also displays glory before us. Look at the rest of verse 14 through verse 17. And we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. See, when the tabernacle was set up, the glory of God descended in the tabernacle. And the word for glory in the Old Testament has the sense of weightiness or heaviness. That's what glory does. When you experience the glory of God, there's there's an overwhelming feeling to it because of the greatness of who God is. I mean, when we go back to the book of Isaiah and see Isaiah gets a snippet of the glory of Christ as he has this vision in the temple and seeing the the train of Jesus' robe fill the temple and smoke fills the temple, it wrecks him. He's undone by it. When Moses sees the backside of God's glory as God hides him in the rock and God passes by him and lets him see kind of the contrail of his glory, Moses walks off the mountain and his face is glowing. I mean, that's some intense thing happening there when we see the glory of God. But what does John say here? He says, in Jesus, we have seen the glory of God. We have seen the glory of God. Jesus, the only son, the unique one, has shown us the greatness and glory of God. How does he do that? He does it by displaying the core of God's character. See, when God gave a, a restricted view of his glory to Moses, he passed by before him and he declared who he was. He says, the Lord has passed, it says the Lord has passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. When John says that in Jesus we have seen the glory of God who is full of grace and truth, he's saying something profound. He's telling us Jesus has the same nature and the same character as God. God told Moses all of these things about himself. And Jesus is the picture of them all. Jesus is full of grace and mercy and loving kindness and faithfulness. He is right and true and exactly who God declared himself to be. John is connecting what God said to Moses to what we see in Jesus. But we don't just hear about that in Jesus. Jesus shows it to us. He tangibly declares it. He displays it before us. He shows compassion to those in need of compassion. He shows speaks words of mercy, he touches and heals the hurting, and ultimately he goes to the cross, nailed to a cross to bear the weight of all of your sin and all of your shame so that you could be reconciled to the living God, forgiven of every heinous act of treason and sin in your life. He physically went to the cross to do that for you. That's why John says that from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Our sin is so significant that we need an unending supply of grace to overcome it. My son Isaac, my middle son, he just had a birthday this last week. He turned six years old. And we wanted to get him a couple of different gifts. There were two things in particular that he was really excited about and was looking forward to or hoping for. And we were like, man, I wish we could get both of those things, but they were a little bit more expensive. And so we ended up getting one of them for him. And we only got one of them because our resources are limited. We don't have an unending supply of resources to buy gifts. But the grace of God given in Christ, it never runs out. It never runs out. It never dries up. God's grace isn't doled out in rations to you. Like you got enough grace for today, maybe you can have some more tomorrow. No, it never dries out. It's lavished in love to you. Why? How? Because it flows out of the nature of who God is. It flows out of his character. Our God who's inexhaustible and is expressed and displayed in the person and work of Christ. The totality of who Jesus is, fully God and fully man. I think that's why John brings up John the Baptist in this kind of strange parenthetical statement in verse 15. If you're reading in the text, it can seem kind of odd Then in verse 15, he makes this statement again about John the Baptist. He says, John bore witness about him, meaning about Jesus, and he cried out, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Next week, we're going to learn a whole lot more about John the Baptist. But I think the reason the Apostle John mentions this here is he wants to remind you and me again that Jesus is always above everyone and everything else because he's existed for all eternity. See, in this text, John is beginning to help us address the temptation that all of us can have to seek wholeness and rescue in two opposite but equally damning ways. See, some of us can go the way of the law and we can seek to Earn our rescue. We can pile up merit badges so that God will accept us. You feel tempted towards that? Maybe if you think, well, if I if I read my Bible every day, if I pray for a certain amount of time, if I come to church relatively regularly and gather with the church, if I give, if I serve and God will love me more because I do those things. Or maybe you think, well, if I could just not sin in this particular way, God will love me more. And the opposite is also true, that if I do sin, God loves me less. You're basing your relationship with God off the law, that you have to perform in a certain way to be able to do something. John wants you to throw that out. And he's going to show us that through this story of Jesus' life. Because he says in verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I mean, this is an amazing reality. He's saying grace upon grace comes through Jesus. For through the law, Moses brought that. But grace and truth come through Christ. And this is actually the first time he mentions Jesus' name in this whole narrative so far. But listen, the law isn't bad. It served its purpose. It showed you your badness. It showed you the evil that resides within you. It showed you your inability to obey God's perfect and righteous demands on your life. But it's good news, amazing news that Jesus has come because in Christ we receive what the law could never provide. In Christ we receive a way to be made right with God, a way to be reconciled to him because Jesus obeyed perfectly. If you're tempted towards that, John wants you to throw that out. But the opposite error and temptation is also present that he is addressing and will address in this, and this is to believe the false idea that's become popular in our culture today to live your truth. Maybe you've heard that. Go, Go live your truth. And what does that mean? It means, hey, what's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me. Don't tell me I'm wrong. I won't tell you you're wrong. If it works for you, go with it. Run with it. This idea that you'll find wholeness and peace by doing whatever you think is right, whatever you think is good for you, But the amazing grace that God promises to make you new, the amazing grace that God promises to give you everlasting peace isn't found in living your truth. It's found in the one who is full of grace and truth. The one who dismantles your self-made ideas of truth and actually roots you in what is real. That God is holy and merciful and just and gracious and desires to know you so that you can be known by him and know him fully. See, the perfect Righteousness that God demands from you, He's given to you in and through Christ. You can only begin to understand the grace of God when it's rooted in truth. When it's rooted in truth, we don't come up with this idea on our own. See, grace and truth are not mutually exclusive concepts, like, well, sometimes I'm a truth person, sometimes I'm a grace person. No, grace and truth go together, they collaborate together. And it's so intense, so profound, so unsearchable that Ephesians tells us that it's going to take an eternity for God to explain it to us. But when we actually come to see Jesus for who he truly is, when we come to follow him in faith, we begin to not only experience grace and truth working together, but experience the radiant glory and character of the living God. This leads to our our last point. He explains God to us. Look at verse 18. Verse 18. John writes, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. That's a pretty strong statement. No one has ever seen God. Why has no one ever seen God? The short answer is because you'd get smoked. If you stood before God in all of His holiness and all of His glory, it would destroy you because you can't bear the weight of it. It's so intense, so powerful. Now, the semicolon in your Bible, at least in the ESV, serves almost like the word but. This is a little bit of a tricky sentence here. So John's trying to say here what he's communicating to us. No one has ever seen God, but the only God, meaning Jesus, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. No one has ever seen God, but we've seen Jesus. What John is trying to tell us here is that Jesus has come to explain God to us. The Greek word here can be translated in where we get the word exegete from. The word exegete is is what we talk about when we do, when we are preaching God's word or studying God's word. To exegete the scriptures is to look at the scriptures and pull the meaning out of the scriptures, to seek to understand what the author was saying. The opposite of that is called eisegesis, which is we read meaning into the scriptures. We kind of decide what we think it means on our own. And so what... John's saying here is that Jesus is exegeting God for us. He's pulling the meaning of who God is, and he's explaining it to us in a way that we can understand, and how he does that is through word and deed. He lives his life before us to explain it in that way, and he's able to do that because he's been with the Father in perfect community for all eternity. I mean, I could read a book about someone. In fact, I'm reading a biography right now about, about Mr. Rogers, and it's a, it's a pretty fascinating book about his life and his journey and his show and all that kind of stuff. I could read that book and I could tell you all kinds of interesting things about Fred Rogers. He was born in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, the same town that Jack Nicholas is from. That he came from a wealthy family. That he loved caring for kids and helping them understand the concepts of life. I could tell you all those things about Fred Rogers. But it would be a whole lot more meaningful if I actually knew him and had spent time with him. See, Jesus doesn't just tell you about God because he read it in a book. He tells you about God because he spent time with the Father for all eternity. He's fully able, fully capable of explaining God to us. And this is hugely significant for our lives, especially in our world today, where we like to come up with our own concepts of God. I mean, there's surveys done in America right now that America as a country, as a nation, is pretty spiritual Lots of people believe in some concept of God. But so often we've kind of pieced that together on our own and created our own view and understanding of God. But the reality is deciding who God is on your own, it isn't your prerogative. It isn't your prerogative to do that. You are a creature. (laughs) You're not self-existent. You don't have full knowledge. You're not independent. You are dependent. The only way to know God and who he is is through Jesus who explains him to us our concept of God must be rooted in Christ. It must be rooted in Christ. Otherwise, it'll just be a figment of our imagination. And it'll start to look a whole lot like us. And listen, I don't want you following figments of your imagination. If we don't root ourselves in who God is, seen in Christ through his word, if we don't relentlessly pursue God through his word, then all of a sudden our concept of God will start to look like white American Jesus. And Jesus will just be in your life to, to make you experience the American dream. I think we see that in our culture today. People are, people idea, people's idea of who Jesus is is getting rocked right now. That's a good thing. If we just have a, an idea of who Jesus is or who God is on our own, then he just becomes a cosmic therapist for us. For us to lay on the couch and tell him about our problems, and he can help us out a little bit here and there. If we have our own idea of who God is, who Jesus is, apart from the word, apart from how he's revealed himself to us in Christ, then then God just becomes cosmic Santa Claus to hook you up and give you things that you need to make you happy, healthy, and wealthy. But that's why we're doing this sermon series. That's why we are spending time walking through the Gospel of John because we want to see Jesus rightly. Whether you've known Christ for a long time or not, all of us can start to look at and view Jesus in the wrong way or maybe you don't know him at all but we want to truly know God and if you want to truly know God then it has to be through seeing Jesus rightly because he explains God to us. These five verses at the end of this section here they bring this introduction that John's been writing. They bring it to a close and they bring it to a close because what John does next is actually show us how Jesus does all these things. How Jesus dwelt among us. How he displays God's glory before us and how he explains God to us. Much of what John has written in these first 18 verses is what theologians call Christology or the doctrine of Christ. Our world can downplay the person of Christ and if you call yourself a follower of Christ, so can you. That the King of kings and the Lord of lords becomes a small little Jesus that you put on your shelf and pull off when you need him. No, he's seeking to elevate Jesus to his rightful place. And if you can begin to grasp, if you can begin to wrap your mind around and see what John has said, even in just these first 18 verses, you have the beginnings of a good Christology being formed to see Jesus the way you should. And this is important, not so you can impress people with your knowledge, your theological knowledge, so people will be wowed about the things you know about Christ. It isn't so that you can Feel good about yourself and what you know. It's because your real theology, what you actually believe about God, it impacts the way that you live. It impacts your ethics and your morals, your understanding of right and wrong. Because God's the one who defines that for you, not you on your own. It impacts your relationships with your coworkers or your family or your roommates. It impacts the way that you work, how you parent, how you date. It impacts how you treat others who are different than you or think differently than you. Because God establishes what it looks like to love him and love others above yourself. And Jesus shows us what that looks like. So let me ask you this morning, what do you actually believe about Jesus? Not what can you write on a paper, not what did you learn in a particular sermon or a Sunday school class. What do you, in your life right now as you walk out into this week, what do you actually believe about Jesus? Who do you say that he is? Listen, a well-lived life, it's not a matter of faithfully following some good principles or being on your best behavior or being nice. A well-lived life is found in a person, a person who calls you to lay down your life and follow him, a person who's full of grace and truth, a person whose nickname is Emmanuel, meaning God with us. A person who calls you to go and make disciples of your neighbors in the nations and says, I will be with you to the end of the age. A person who just in a few verses we're going to hear is the Lamb of God who will be slain for the sinners like you and me. Church, this is revolutionary stuff. I hope, I pray that even this week that it would sit in your on your mind and hit you in your heart and between the eyes in a fresh way this week to recognize how revolutionary this is that Christ came to dwell among us. This is life-altering, history-shaping, so significant that if you actually set your gaze on the historical Jesus who is the Jesus of the Bible, if you set your gaze on him, it'll lead you to trust in the Lord in every aspect of your life to do good to seek to love God and love others more than yourself, to dwell in the land, to find wherever God has placed you, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in the family you're in, to dwell therein, befriend faithfulness, and honor him with the entirety of your life. In other words, it'll lead you to look a lot like your Savior. Sojourn, may we continually seek to see Jesus rightly and rejoice in the one who came to us as one of us to rescue us. In him, in him alone, is light in life now and forever. Now, while we can't physically see Jesus now, God has given us a means of grace to help us image the gospel. That's why we take communion together every week. The bread and the cup are a picture of Jesus' body and Jesus' blood, broken and shed for us. This isn't the actual physical body and blood of Jesus, but it points us to that. It reminds us of what Christ has done For us, it gives us something tangible to taste, to experience. So come forward this morning. Come forward and lay aside every false idea you have and how to be reconciled to God. Come forward this morning to eat the bread and drink the cup, laying aside every false idea you have about Jesus. And come in faith, rejoicing in the one who has come to you. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, we would just ask you not to come forward to take communion. Again, I'm grateful that you're here this morning, that God has brought you to be here, but this meal is a a testimony, a testifying that we believe Jesus is who he says he is and did what he said he came to do. And so if you're not there yet, if you don't yet believe that, that's okay, but we want you to. So instead of coming forward and taking communion, we want you to take Christ this morning, that you would just sit in your seat, that you'd pray to God, that you'd confess your need for a savior, And that you let somebody around you know that you want to know what it looks like to know Jesus. You want to know what it looks like to follow Jesus. That's why we're here as a community. It's why we do this life together. So let somebody know that. Those of you that will come forward, you can come to the tables at the front or the tables at the back. And what Christ, our Redeemer, our Savior, our King, has done for you will be spoken over you this morning. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you did the unthinkable God, that you sent your one and only son to take on humanity, to take on flesh, not to decrease in his deity, not to decrease in the fact that he is God, but to take on something new, to take on a human nature, that he might be able to live the perfect life that that I can't live, that you call me to live, but that I can't live, that none of us can. God, we're grateful that you sent Jesus to dwell among us, to display your glory before us and to explain you, our heavenly father, to us. And God, there's still mystery in that. We can't wrap our minds fully around every aspect of this, but we can know more than we would apart from Christ. So God, I pray that this week as we walk out of here, that you would root us in Christ, that we would set our gaze on Jesus, that as we read through the Gospel of John on our own, as we study it together on Sunday mornings, God, that you would widen our view and elevate our view of Jesus. And that by doing that, that we would see that Jesus is not an idea, but he's a person, a king, a savior to be followed. God, would you help us by the power of your spirit to submit the entirety of our lives to King Jesus, the one who is, the one who was, the one who is to come. We rejoice in Christ our Savior this morning. We pray all this in his name.
0: Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon from Sojourn Fairfax. If you have any questions, please feel free to email us at info at sojournfairfax.com. Go in peace.